I just want to say, if you meet somebody named Mordeth, probably not going to be the someone you want to trust super well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, what's your name? Mordeth? Oh, what's his name? Uh, More Murder, actually, is his name. Yeah. <laughs> Even Mordeth is his. <laughs> Even Mordeth. The most death. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, friends, to episode 208 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the middle third of Robert Jordan's 1990 novel, The Eye of the World, book one of The Wheel of Time. Well, blood and bloody ashes, James, I forgot to uh, talk about some important stuff in our last episode. Uh, regarding Robert Jordan's uh, death, uh, uh, tragic death, and uh, the passing on of the the series to Brandon Sanderson. Um, I think I I alluded to it and was like, oh yeah, we'll get to that. And then I just completely forgot to talk about it because we had so many other things to get to. Um, But luckily for us, we're doing more than one episode. So I will talk about that this time. But I just want to check back in with you first. Uh, we have read the middle third of the book here, uh, chapters, I believe, 16 through 34. And, uh, you know, the, the plot has progressed, but uh, we have not reached the conclusion yet or the final act of this of this book. So it's kind of that that middle area where we just get to spend more time with the characters and get to know the world a little bit more. Um, and I'm curious to check back in with you since this is your first time reading uh, where are you at with this book, with this series, and and has anything changed or, or or developed for you? I early on felt like it was going to continue to just be sort of paint by numbers fantasy, but like not in a bad way, in sort of like a referential way, like something that we'd seen before a lot of the way, and it's starting to really distinguish itself for me. And uh, something I wanted to key in on, just like right off the bat, with Robert Jordan's writing is. He knows how to write the scenes that we want to read. Like there there are a lot of times in fantasy where even even fantasy that, you know, maybe overstays its welcome. There are see, there are scenes where you're getting a character that you care less about from a different perspective, something like that. And Jordan somehow is able to juggle all like these different perspectives which we branch off into. And each one is as interesting as the other. So there, there's not one specific because normally I'm like keyed into like the Jon Snow chapters like, oh, can't wait to get more Jon Snow in mm-hmm. my Game of Thrones in the uh, Song of Ice and Fire novels. This it really feels well balanced to me. And I think that's that's a credit to the characters in this story. Like every character has been compelling. I've had a great time. There's a lot of really cool powers and characters being introduced that are obviously are going to have like huge ramifications throughout the course of this, like however many books are in this massive series 14 so i'm just like really <laughs> how many 14 and a prequel Four- yeah all right well 14 so <laughs> i i don't know i found myself getting more and more hooked into this story and it's becoming easier and easier to read and i just feel myself like falling in love with this world and and a lot of the lore and uh you know um we'll get more into other character specifics along the way but uh pretty quickly we lost our gandalf scare surrogate for the group the the this group breaks apart and uh Moraine is separated from the the safety is separated from these characters which I enjoyed seeing you know everyone in peril and having to survive and mm-hmm. and uh it feels very like there were some chapters where I was very tense you know I was like I, I and um another thing is unfortunately with like these all these great characters he's so good at building up these characters 
I don't know which ones he's capable of killing. And so there's mm. like a lot of that popping up where I'm just like, oh, God, is he going to kill these characters early on for motivation reasons? And I, I don't know. There's there's been a lot of that for me. So I don't, overall, I'm just really enjoying the ride. And uh, I can't wait to talk more about the specifics. Cool, man. I'm glad to hear that. A um, couple things to react to there. Uh, first off, you're mentioning the split in POVs. And that reminds me of something I got very wrong last uh, episode as well. Um, I said that this entire book was only from Rand's perspective and uh, quickly learned that that was incorrect. Um, what I had forgotten is that it's Rand's perspective until the group splits. When the group splits, which is what we'll talk about in our first chunk of plot here, um, that's when the POV actually splits and we do get uh, parent, some parent chapters. I think we get some naive chapters. Um, so we start to get some other perspectives. Um and that is going to be the norm going forward with this uh, series as it sort of branches out more and more. Uh, I am very glad to hear that you're enjoying each of the perspectives sort of equally and having a good time jumping between them. Um, I wish I could say that people feel the same way as this story continues to branch. Um, later books, I think, uh, I think most Wheel of Time fans would agree that that is not always the case and that sometimes you end up spending long time with characters who feel very tertiary <laughs> um, and you're like, I want to get back to so-and-so because they're the ones who I really care about. Um, and that happens as this, this, this series eventually becomes just hugely sprawling. And, but I think what's interesting in regard to that is you can start to see the, like the way that happens here, Right. Because you see the early branching, and you can just start to imagine a, a additional branching, more branching, more characters, more you know side characters get brought in and uh, become primary enough to where they start to get POV chapters. And I don't mm -hmm. know what the actual stats are on it. I know so, uh, someone's probably broken it down somewhere, but there's an immense number of POVs um, where we get uh, uh, chunks of the books written from different characters' points of views. And uh, that that number just gets higher and higher. And as some people would argue, perhaps too high. Um, <laughs> uh, and and I, I would agree with them. I'm just not I don't want to say that everybody believes that. But like I am sort of in the boat of like, I think the sprawl got a little bit away from him for a while. Um, and then, you know, uh, with his with his diagnosis and passing, it was unfortunate. But um, it, it, it does eventually come back together. I haven't read again. I haven't read the final book um but i do know that uh it seems like people are pretty happy with it and i'm going to touch in on mm -hmm. some of that stuff that happened with him and sanderson here in a minute last episode i talked about how i was excited to see like especially with the Egwene and rand sort of relationship being built up i really wanted to see the characters sort of have their own adventures and split and yeah. do interesting things on their own and i was very happy that that was the case some of my favorite parts of the novel so far have definitely been in this middle chunk and okay, like I'll, cool. I'll key into like my specifics because uh and and even like I'll give a little a little, a little taste here but like uh I don't like Matt as much as I was hoping to you know like it's <laughs> I think it's obvious that that was supposed to be the case and there's just like an eventual like I, I guess a, a theory of mine would be that he's going to do something drastically bad versus like what he's doing currently is like kind of sketchy. So he's, and then there's going to be some sort of redemption and he'll be a great character. But right now I'm just kind of bummed with Matt. I'm like, damn, yeah. I wanted this character to be more interesting. Yeah. Matt, uh, Matt gets a dagger in Shatter Lorgoth, which we're about to talk about. Um, and, uh, yeah, things, things start to deteriorate for him. I think, I think it's safe to say there. Um, 
and and honestly, you're making me want to jump right into the plot. But before we do, I think I got to talk about uh, back up a little bit and talk about what actually happened with Robert Jordan. So uh, on March 23rd of 2006, uh, Robert Jordan disclosed that he had been di- diagnosed with cardiac amyloidosis uh, and that with treatment, his median life expectancy was four years. Um, I actually remember reading that blog post. I was a, I was a big fan at the time. 2006 was a couple of years after I'd finished high school. I was still reading the books. I think I had read everything that was out to that point. Um, I, you know, I had started college, so I was reading other stuff as well, of course. But I remember reading that post and, and just going, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You know, I, I you know, hopefully he can beat this thing and, um, you know, have a have a have a long life regardless of this this uh, diagnosis. And that was his goal. And his message was that he was going to fight and, and um, try and, and have a long, productive life. And unfortunately, uh, that wouldn't come to pass. So in a separate post, he encouraged fans not to worry about him and stated that he intended to have a long and creative life. Um, He began chemotherapy at the Mayo Clinic in April of 2006. Despite the treatment, unfortunately, he died on September 16th of 2007. Uh, So a little over a year, uh, it's like 16 months or something after his diagnosis. And he was cremated, and his ashes were buried in the churchyard of St. James's Church in Goose Creek outside of Charleston, South Carolina. So this hit the community pretty hard, um, and a lot of people came out and talked about the influence he had on them and wondered what, what was going to happen with the series. I remember reading his blog posts, because um, I, I know he had this diagnosis, so I, I, I was following his blog, and he would post updates about like his treatment and about writing. And I remember he had this lengthy post where he talked about how he gathered all of his friends and family, like close, close family and friends, I think. And he told them verbally um, the ending to the to the series, supposedly over like many hours. He like verbally told them the ending of the series. He had been writing it, um, but unfortunately he hadn't he didn't have time to finish it. Um, He intended for it to be, I think, one more book um, and he had it. He had it mapped out and he had he had certain chapters were completely written. Certain chapters were just a few sentences, um, but yeah, unable to finish it. Around this time, Brandon Sanderson uh, joins a, a group of writers who are posting, you know, their thoughts and feelings about the series. And he writes a eulogy um, on his website. Um, and I can read a piece of that here and then I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Brandon Sanderson says, now he's gone. I'm sure many see this as an opportunity, not a tragedy. Who is the heir apparent? I wonder how many authors emailed their editors Monday asking if someone was needed to finish the Eye of the World series. Even if none of them are chosen for that task, there will be a feeling that Tor needs to push somebody to fill the hole in their lineup. And yet, I sit here thinking that something has changed. Something is missing. Some hated you, Mr. Jordan, claiming you represented all that is terrible about popular fantasy. Others revered you as the only one who got it right. Personally, I simply feel indebted to you. You showed me what it was to have vision and scope in a fantasy series. You showed me what could be done. I still believe that without your success, many younger authors like myself would never have a chance at publishing their dreams. You go quietly, but leave us trembling. Brandon Sanderson. So... That comes at the end of a touching eulogy, which I, I, I encourage you to read. I didn't want to read it in its entirety here, but he tells a story about like actually 
um, meeting Robert Jordan um, at a con and um, talking about when he first read The Eye of the World, how he still thinks it's one of the best fantasy novels ever written, um, how it was sort of foundational in his development as a fantasy author, and how he feels like uh, Robert Jordan's generation was reacting to Lord of the Rings, but to him, he feels like he was reacting to Robert Jordan. So that making him sort of a, a, a grandchild of that, <laughs> of, of Lord of the Rings, and, and with Robert Jordan being the father, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, he's the next step, and that's how he kind of views himself in his writing of fantasy. And, you know, with the, with the understanding that this would be like Western fantasy of an epic certain kind that, you know, a lot of people think of when they think of fantasy. So... Um, I do recommend people read that. It, it is a it is actually a touching read. Um, and what happened was Harriet, uh, Robert Jordan's uh, wife, read that eulogy, and she was a fan of Brandon Sanderson's novels already. She already liked his writing. She read that and was touched by it and felt like he seemed like someone who would get it right. So she reached out to him, and some sort of agreement was reached, and he was brought in by Tor. Uh, to finish the series. Now, he was still a fairly new writer. He'd only published a few novels, I think, at this point. Um, But he would take on what was the biggest fantasy series in the world, basically. And he ended up having to draw it out into three books um, because he he felt like there was just too much and he had to to do it his own way, I think, and sort of flesh it out and... um, you know, I think it ended up being for the best because I also think it sounds like he got a chance to get more comfortable with the series and get more comfortable writing the characters. Um, and I say that because I, I read an interesting interview with him where he talks about the process of actually writing it. So this is from a Wired article, which I'll also post a link to in the show notes. Brandon Sanderson says, The last thing that Robert Jordan wrote is the last chapter of this book, says Brandon Sanderson. Uh, talking about the, the this is the final book, A Memory of Light. I felt when I first read it that it was a satisfying ending. I felt it was the right ending. It's been my guidepost for all the work I've done on this. Um, one thing he said about his uh, how he writes the characters, he says, I'm going to bring my own interpretation as a longtime fan of the characters, and in most cases, they're spot on with what most people think. There haven't been many complaints about my parent, for instance. In some cases, there are complaints, and they're right. My early mat was off, and I acknowledged this. I looked at what people were saying. In other cases, such as with Lon, they're wrong. Laughs. What can I say? I'm a fan too, and we will have these arguments about whether this character would do this, or that, or what character would do that, and you'll find that in any community. On the other hand, I do get complaints, and the complaints are legit. I'm not Robert Jordan, and I can't do some of the things he could simply do because I don't have his life experience, and in many ways, I'm not as good a writer as he was. And if that really bothers you, then hopefully we can get the original notes released so that those of you for whom my interpretation was not good or my failings ruined the experience for them, they can at least look at what Robert Jordan had and imagine their own story. Um, so I like that he he is sort of humble about it and saying like I'm a different writer there are things I can't do as well as him there are there are characters who my interpretation is maybe a little different uh of what they would do and 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 he even openly admits there without maybe naming the characters that he struggled with as much other than the Matt thing um that he felt like he wasn't doing as well and I know that that was one of my problems I talked about how I, I it felt weird to me and I think in particular it was his handling of certain characters 
I remember reading it and just feeling like this is wrong. This is not what this character would do or how this character would behave or what this character would say in a moment. Like it felt like the voice was wrong and um, it was enough to make me less excited for the series. It's one of the reasons why I didn't end up finishing it. Um, But I want to go back to it because it sounds like over the course of these three books, he kind of got better at it and maybe uh, uh, came around and listened to what fans were saying and, and found his way to it. And it sounds to me like mostly people like this final book. So all that is to say that uh, I, I do want to finish this series now, but I might have to do a whole series reread because once again, I don't, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have, I've lost track of all these characters and everything. And so um, who knows when I'll have time to do that, but maybe, maybe through the course of covering the show, I'll, I'll get to read more books. I don't know. Anyway, that's a lot, but I, I wanted to, to have all that out there. That is an essential part of the story of Wheel of Time. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can continue because I'm really enjoying it for the podcast. And if not for the podcast, I know that I'll continue it on my own. Um, the you know, it's absolutely tragic that he passed so so young and so suddenly. Um, and I just can't even imagine the magnitude, like the the weight that would be rec- like that you would have to contend with to, to write something like this for Sanderson to come in, especially as a younger writer and even attempt it. And it sounds like he handled it with grace and people seem to, to enjoy it. And I know Sanderson has a, has a really big following still right now. So I, you know, I have to assume that he, he did a great job with it. Um, but what a, what an undertaking that would be, how yeah. intimidating that would be to try to fill the shoes of somebody that you looked up to in that way. Um, I just yeah, it's a it's honestly a miracle that the, the story finished in in any regard. So yeah, um, and and you know it's funny like in reading this, I think a lot about how Jordan viewed the the world kind of, or at least his world that he was creating, and this whole you know the wheel wills as the wheel weaves, and mm-hmm. the wheel weaves as the wheel wills, mm-hmm. whatever it is, and All the way the that the way that <laughs> yeah, the way that it it's sort of like the cyclical thing, mm-hmm. uh, things turn over, nothing's really an ending or a beginning, and I, I don't know, I find something really like peaceful. I don't know, I just think that it's nice to have something like a novel to continue his legacy because there's no ending for for Robert Jordan as long as somebody picks up his book and continues reading his work, you know. Yeah. So I think it's sort of this never ending circle in that way. So. I, I don't know. I, I found it to be I find it really interesting to read his work and, and um, enjoying it a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I love about fiction. One of the things that draws me to it. There is a certain immortality that you can achieve in a way through writing um, it, it, as long as people are continuing to read your stuff. Right. Like his voice is still an important voice. It is still a voice that is continuing to delight and engage and, and, and entertain. And, um, you know, it is it is really cool whenever we can read an author who is passed on, but is uh, their work is still is still important and is still uh, powerful and can affect us Um, because, yeah, that's like one of the few ways I feel like we can we can achieve immortality. Um, So let me give some general thoughts and then we'll jump into plot. Yeah, Um, but I just this is um, this is an interesting part of a book to me because it is this this writers often call this part of the book the saggy middle. Um, when referring to like their own books, right? Like you, people tend to be excited about the end, excited about the beginning. They do a ton of work on getting the beginning just right. They do a ton of work on getting the ending just right. And then, but sometimes when you're writing the middle, you can get kind of lost in the weeds. You can feel like not enough is happening or not enough is changing. People can get bogged down. And mm-hmm. so it's often called, called the saggy middle. Um, and, this is a this is the chunk of the book we re- we just read basically right 
Um, and it, it's comprised mostly of a, multiple characters breaking off and forming like mini traveling partners who encounter mm-hmm. different adventures uh, along the road. Um, it's a lot of that. I mean, there's the big section in Shadar Logoth, which we're about to talk about. But um, I, I just find it fascinating as someone who's, you know, currently writing a novel um, to see how this was handled. I think there's a lot of little interesting uh, choices that are made throughout that I can learn from. Um, I, I like doing that. Um, I think he handles it well. It, it, I continue to see the influence of Lord of the Rings on um, the overall plot of this. And every now and then there are moments where you're like, oh, yeah, that's very similar. But um, it does. I think it, it has started to break away a little bit more here and started to mm-hmm. touch on things that feel more wholly Robert Jordan. Um, and I think there will always be a discussion when it comes to Robert Jordan about the difference between influence and copying, right? And and you know what I mean? And and I think... Um, you think throughout or just this novel or the early novels? I think somewhat throughout. I, I do think it was probably more present for early novels where it was more obvious. Um, I, I, I Again, I haven't finished the series. I can't really speak on the series as a whole. But I see... One of the things I didn't talk about last week that I think I am pretty confident is the case, is that I see a lot of influences from Frank Herbert here, too. Oh, me too. Yeah, I had one big one that I was going to mention tonight. <laughs> okay, perfect. I, yeah, I want you to still. Um, so I think the first off, the Bene Gesserit from Dune and the Aes Sedai, I think there's a lot of crossovers here. That's that's like basically mine as well. Like that yeah. was sort of, sort of the thing I was going to get at. Yeah. Specifically the way that the main character is sort of the opposite gender sort of chosen one outside of the the norm for that group yeah um and sort of feels very similar well and just also the way that the Aes Sedai as like a a group of women powerful women influence world politics um are sort of hated and loved and powerful and um you know have just they're 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 a very interesting force within the world of the wheel of time and to me it feels very directly drawn from the Bene Gesserit um, I, I can see that you can look at that and go like, oh, those are just similarities. I don't see the direct correlation. Um, and I, I, I'll grant you that. I think one that we haven't touched on much, we don't know much about them yet, so I won't go into a lot of detail, um, is the Aeol. Um, and the Aeol, to me, the more I think about them, the more I see direct correlations to the Fremen. I really believe that they are someone that he, in the same way that he uses Lord of the Rings to inspire his world. I think he used the Fremen to inspire that group. Um, and and I think there's a lot of visual clues to that, which we'll, you will get to more as we get into those into that group. Um, I don't even remember how much of them are in this first book, but they are a big presence throughout the series. So anyway, I, I you know, and that's another massive book, you know, which we just read for the first time recently. Um, so I may be in a position to where I'm more likely to notice that thing. But if you're touching on a lot of these major cornerstone novels and bringing their influence directly into your work, um, I think you are opening yourself up to some criticism if people are like, oh, maybe you're just copying so-and-so, right? Um, but, you know, and he, he would probably argue, oh, no, it's an homage or I'm, I'm, I'm doing a reinterpretation of that. Um, and I, I don't know what the right answer is, honestly, to that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do think it's interesting. And again, I haven't confirmed that. I haven't like read that anywhere. So people may disagree. But I, I do see a lot of Dune influence here. Especially because it's so fresh in our mind. Yeah. Too. Um, 
the you know where i land on it is there's room for both and like you know of course there's there's the people who will say hey it's way too similar and that's totally fine and that's a valid reading on it yeah but at the same time i think there's it still deserves to exist you know what i mean i think there's still room to have like you said yeah. a reinterpreted version of it or an homage whatever you want to call it and and there's no denying the amount of original stuff that he puts into these like there is so much that is just completely original to it that um you know, you can say that maybe certain big pink things were were this sort of uh, influenced, uh, you know, lifted materials from other series. But, you know, there's no denying the amount of originality that, that does exist in this series. Uh, OK, so I think let's go on. I'm going to read the first chunk of plot I have here and then we can react. So when we last left, uh, I think Nynaeve had just shown up at the at the end. They were in. Uh, yeah. What was the name of it? Stag and Lion. Stag and Lion, right. Um, so when Rand and his friends refuse to return with Nynaeve, she joins them to ensure their continued safety. Pursued by an ever-increasing number of Trollocs and Mildral, the travelers are forced to take refuge in an ancient, abandoned, deadly city of Shadar Logoth, a place even Mildral are reluctant to enter. While Rand and his two friends foolishly try to explore the ruined city, they meet a ma- strange man named Mordeth. He first offers them riches in exchange for a small favor, then attempts to kill them when he learns that their companions include an Aes Sedai and that their eventual destination is Tarvalon. Tarvalon, sorry. I forget. That's how they say it. In the, <laughs> Tarvalon. <laughs> the home city of the Aes Sedai order. The three barely escape and only reach their companions just before nightfall. Mirdral and Trollocs enter Shadar Lagoth during the night, forcing the eight companions from their warded quarters. As they try to avoid the search and leave the city, Mashadar, the evil of Shadar Lagoth made manifest, separates them from each other. And that's where the group splits and we get split POVs. I think there's a good point to stop and talk about everything that le- leads up to that point and the important destination of Shadar Logoth. So what were your thoughts on this chunk? This is probably my favorite part so far, just being introduced to like an ancient city like this. And I love that it's all, all wrapped around this idea that they walled themselves up and sort of didn't answer the call yeah. when they were asked for aid and that sort of thing. And then <laughs> where and, was uh, Gondor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when the West fall. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, I, you know, I really like that. I like that the city like folded in on itself and became this like cursed land. I, I just found this to be really fun and, and really creepy because I didn't know exactly what was going to go on in it. And wait a um, minute. Isn't that like the story behind the army of the dead that Aragorn like didn't, yes. didn't weren't they like the betrayers or somebody who didn't yes. fight in the war or something? Yeah. Yes. So I, again, you know, if you're like a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and you're reading this, you're probably like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're like, oh, this is cool. It's just like Lord of the Rings. But I can imagine some people going like, come on. So, yeah, yeah I, I like it. Yeah. You know, I, like I said, room for both. I, I, I almost like part of me because I am a big Lord of the Rings fan is like, this is fun. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is a cool way to like reinterpret. And it, it is in a different enough. Right. Like it's not the same, but it's pretty similar. It's not the only story that's had like forsaken oaths and things oh, for like sure. that. Oh, for sure. And that's know. very There's... fair. Lord, of the, you know, and, and Tolkien was inspired by other things and, and Beowulf and other and definitely other stuff. So, yeah. So uh, I love the city, love the design of the city, the idea behind it. Mm-hmm. I love the creepiness. And of course, I love Matt sneaking off. This is where like I'm still really enjoying Matt. Yeah. As, like fucking like he's like goes off. Well, he's still fairly normal at this point. He's kind of a doof throughout. Like he's constantly saying like 
talking about things he's not supposed to talk about. Every time he meets somebody, he like tells them everything that he's not supposed to say. Um, you know, so he's, he's just more innocent yeah. than annoying. Or uh, I mean, probably still annoying to some people. But <laughs> one of the things that I'm finding interesting and fun is like trying to figure out which threats and evil beings are attached specifically to Balsamon and which ones are specific. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and really, like, is Balsamon the end all be all? evil entity in this world or is there something above Balsamon? Uh he seems like the the overall big threat so far but uh seeing like more death yeah. and thinking like is this like a is this like and, and even like you talked about the uh Mashadar the evil like mist almost mm-hmm. like what like is this all sort of his hand still that evil over, over like evil overall or is these like individual evil entities that like have their own yeah uh sort of like paths and and things that they want those are good questions <laughs> yeah i'm yeah. still enjoying like meeting meeting these threats along the way i, I just want to say if you meet somebody named more death probably not going to be the someone you want to trust super well <laughs> exactly <laughs> well what's your oh, name no, more death sure. oh what's his name uh more murder actually is his name yeah <laughs> Even more death. Is his <laughs> Even more death. The most death. <laughs> yeah. So they they go down into his cavern or whatever, and he, of course, like comes away with a, a cursed dagger, yeah. ruby dagger. And his thinking is that he stole it. It wasn't given to him. So that like makes it okay. We'll get to the part where they're all running and they've they've all split off. But like they, these like dark friends keep finding them. And you're like, well, you do have like a cursed item that might be like <laughs> luring things potentially slash yeah I, I don't know and it's clearly changing him along the way but yeah i, I just really like shadar logoth i like that um there's moments of like i like that moraine like puts wards up around them and uh lawn like goes off on his own and she's like oh he'll be fine out there mm-hmm. and then over time you she has like a worried look or whatever yeah. and you're like oh shit like is lawn gonna be okay and like i did love yeah. just like how capable Lon is still. Yeah. And, he comes uh, back with like three badges from some Trollocs he killed, right? And he's yeah. like, yeah, there are Trollocs in the city. So so they do get driven in by the, by the Madral, and then the, the question is like, who drove the Madral in? Um, but yeah, like it, it's kind of cool to have this area that like even they're afraid of. Um, right. And we hear this story about why essentially there was like a big army of them that stayed there in a previous war. And then like, they all died. <laughs> and then when they mm-hmm. went in to see what happened to them, there was like blood everywhere and none of them were, were left living. And, and then like, uh, they, they've just always remembered that this place is just like, don't go there. Which makes me think that like, you know, the fact that like Balsamon is sending the fade and, and the, the Trollocs into this area makes me think that the city has its own evil, you know, mm-hmm. maybe even more ancient or older, some sort of different cursed magic, whatever it is. Uh, so I, you know, I like that. I think it's cool. And and then the Mashadar like legit kills a bunch of Trollocs. Like it like latches onto them, I think, or maybe even a fade. I can't remember yeah, exactly. I can't what remember it, if it kills a fade. It, it might. Yeah, it kills. I think it, maybe it does. So it's almost like a different, I agree. It's like, it doesn't seem connected or at least like controlled by, uh, Balsamon, uh, and the Dark Lord. Yeah. Uh, definitely agree with all of that. Um, so, so yeah, Matt takes this dagger and, um, it's something that he sort of becomes very protective of and guarded of, and he thinks people are trying to steal it, and um, he hides it from people, and he gets distrustful of Rand for when Rand pr- proposes that he should sell it later. Um, again, we see some carry over here, right? Like, is this, is this the one ring? Like, It's his precious. Yeah, it's his precious, yeah. So, of course, like, Robert Jordan had to get in a cursed magic item that one character has. Um, it's like... Yeah, it, it you can make so many connections. So we'll continue to do it, I guess, as they pop up. 
Yeah, so a uh, very cool part of the book, I think. Um, and, and I love that it does end in them splitting. Um, what about backing up a little bit, Nynaeve joining the group and her interactions with Moraine and, and Lon, which do continue after this for a little bit, because um, I think she, she ends up being with them. Um, what, what is your take, what is your read on that relationship that's forming and, and, and naive now that she's a POV character who you've gotten to read some chapters from. So, you know, the details that we've gotten about naive have been very interesting because Moraine is so focused on getting the boys back, getting Perrin, Matt and, and Rand back. But at the same time, she keeps talking about how powerful Egwene is and how naive is potentially even more powerful and how they're, a, she's a part of the pattern. So she's like, you know, she, she kind of, doesn't even feel like it's an it's a possibility that that Nynaeve won't continue along with them. You know, she's kind of just like, you know, she's it's like, the pattern. You're going to come with us. Part, she's a part of it now. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, I, I like that she's so resistant to the Aes Sedai, whereas whereas Egwene was like very open to it. She's not. Nynaeve is still like the, the big sister trying to get all of her family home and just like return to their lives and and like as she's starting to learn about the fact that she's like so connected that the even the wisdom the the he, listening to the wind is like a really just like touching the one power in, in a different way right. uh, how she's resistant to that i think that's an interesting character trait like just yeah. to be you know to be resistant to the thing that eventually like she'll be very powerful and i assume right and, and you can see that she is very torn and in fact we see this in multiple characters right like they're very resistant to the emerging reality of their powers. And Nynaeve in mm -hmm. particular doesn't want to accept the idea that she can touch the source and um, and that maybe she could be an Aes Sedai. And like, she doesn't want that at all, right? Like she, she's like, no, Aes Sedai are dark friends. Like she's someone who seems to like buy into a lot of the, the stuff we talked about previously, you know, the sort of misconceptions or maybe all right conceptions, we don't know yet, um, that are out there. And um, yeah, I, I think that's all fascinating. She's definitely a conflicted character for that reason. She is. She's always seemed to me as someone who is like very short to anger. She doesn't take shit from anybody, but also she like has a temper to her, and sometimes that gets her in trouble. In trouble, which has been important too, because Moraine points out that like if you're gonna be a nice Sedai, you have to be you have to be in control right. of your emotions and be in control of yourself. And uh, you know. Who's to say that not being in control of your emotions could be even more powerful or right. something as an Aes Sedai or something in the future? Um, or just like if she, you know, because she is so sort of like quick to anger, maybe like getting control of that will be sort of su such a such a task that that will like having overcome that will be will make her more powerful mm -hmm. in the end or something. There's also an interesting moment where she sneaks up on them. And she's in particular, oh, part, yeah. uh, she's like eavesdropping and Moraine is the one who calls her out. But um, Lon didn't know she was there. And uh, yeah, he keeps getting pissed and they have some chemistry, I think. I think there's a little bit of tension between them, two of them. Yeah, she she uh, there's a couple times where she sort of maybe protests too much about like not wanting to, you know, not caring about Lon and what he thinks and like. She blushes a few times and there's a few things that happen that, yeah, are, are hinting at maybe some attraction between them. And even some looks from him, even mm -hmm. some looks from him, like some lingering looks or some surprised looks. And I think he's interested in the fact that she can Ad sneak up admiration, on him. right? Like, I think he was like he was frustrated, but also impressed that she was able to do it. Also, we get like the look at how cold Moiraine potentially is, at least like towards the fact that she needs to pursue her mission and she's going to get the boys back no matter what because she would rather them die like she would rather kill them them herself 
uh, rather than the dark one get a hold of yeah. them. And then also on top of that, like Nynaeve is like, let's go after Egwene. And she's like, no, like, you know, as much as I think she's a good person or whatever, and she could be very powerful and, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in her. I can't like there's no there's no time to afforded for that. So we're, yeah. we're going straight for the boys. Yeah, we got to go for them. Yeah. And she's given them each a coin and she's able to sort of track them, which is important for like understanding how they're able. She's able to have any idea where they are. So we get the split. And um, I think let's let's first focus on Egwene and Perrin. I'll read what happens with them and then we can return to uh, Rand and Matt to, to sort of finish out our plot summary here. So Egwene and Perrin plan a route that should take them from Shadar Lugoth directly toward Camelin. Along the way, they meet Elias Machera, a man who can communicate with wolves. He tells them that their current route would not take them anywhere near Camelin, and he decides to accompany the two youngsters at least part of the way to Camelin. Elias tells Perrin that he, too, can communicate with the wolves, but Perrin shows little interest in that possibility. They travel for a few days with the two of the An, which are otherwise known as the Tinkers, a nomadic, pacifistic people, before striking out on their own when the wolves witness one of Perrin's dreams featuring Baalzaman. After fleeing from massive swarms of ravens and crows sent to mark their movement and kill them, they run afoul of a legion of children of light commanded by Geoffrim Bornhold, father of the officer encountered in Barillon. After witnessing the death of a wolf at the hands of a white cloak, Perrin, whose talent has developed despite his efforts, goes temporarily insane, and, well, that's maybe a bit of editorializing, (laughs) Uh, goes temporarily insane and kills two of them. Elias escapes, but the Children of Light hold Perrin and Egwene prisoner, planning to execute at least Perrin as soon as they reach Amador. Okay, so... Yeah, let's back up there. We got Egwene and Perrin, and they 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 escape together, basically. Well, not together, but they end up meeting up shortly after, and they they go to cross the river. I think they swim across this river. So well, they fall into the river, and then and then like sort of are separated temporarily. Yeah, they fall into the river, but they're fairly safe on the other side of the river because like the the all the you know uh, forces of the darkness won't won't cross the river. Um, and because of that, they are the ones who end up traveling together. They decide they're going to go to Camelin, and then they encounter this guy, Elias Machera, and we start learning about wolves. Uh, what was your take yeah. on all this? Such a fucking cool like power, and I was I was so interested in this. I love it. I love dogs, so like mm-hmm. just having like wolves and the ability to communicate with them and and like battle with them, and and like I love Elias is clearly very wolf-like and like i was like is this guy just straight up like shifter druid kind of thing is he gonna shift into a wolf still unclear but uh, I, I don't think so eyes, right yeah, yeah yeah he's got yellow wolf. so unclear but probably not i don't know we'll see but uh the i just love this section um i wanted to say r.i.p hopper yeah uh, he was a good boy yeah that was sad for sure i love that that part was really like he he describes how he he was like a younger wolf who who dreamt of flying like an eagle and like he was always jumping around. And so he like leaps into combat like a soaring eagle and kills a couple mm-hmm. of these white cloaks before getting taken out himself. And he's trying to like let Perrin escape, right? Like he's come to like free Perrin. And then Perrin goes kind of crazy and kills a couple. Well, he's like run brother or something. And it's like the connection with the wolves. It's just, it's very cool. And, and I'm really into it. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should just talk about a little bit more about like the way that they communicate is like nonverbal and it's like this sort of in all in like this pack thing. And I love that the wolves are like ancient 
sort of because they all remember the older wolves and they remember things like older than Balsamon potentially yeah. and, and the histories long past, but they can't. The, their magic, their connection, the wolf, the wolf connection and stuff. It's like an older thing, he says, than that. Mm-hmm. Like it goes all the way back. Getting to hear, I mean, all of these, I love bringing these wolves in to literally be characters because normally it's just like, oh, there's ghosts and he's awesome. He does cool stuff every once in a while. <laughs> but getting, talking to wolves, like getting into. They have names. They're named characters. Well, that, they're, but their names are like special things that, it, it reminds me a little bit of the ants, honestly. But like, yeah, it's like they, their names are actually like the feeling of a dappling sunlight on a water as it drifts and like, and all this stuff. But it's even that's not quite right. And. Um, they just call them Dapple for short or whatever. So like, yeah, there, there's it, it's interesting they like shorten it down. Um, but yeah, I like the way the way Robert Jordan conceptualizes the you know the way that these wolves think um, is very cool. Like it feels apropos. Um, they don't care about like what time it is, so it's difficult to get from them certain details. Um, and yet there are certain things they are good at, and they are they do notice, um, and they are able to sort of scout out. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seems like wolves are sort of a force for good because they hate like, you know, the, the denizens of the dark basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, uh, Perrin seems to be having this sort of growing connection to them. Yeah. Quickly. And he, again, resistant. He did, wasn't, he didn't want it at first. Nope. was very resistant. Yep. And, uh, I, but, but like that, I, I can't wait to see like Perrin, king of the wolves, like <laughs> fucking just like going on, going around, having these connection to wolves going forward. And, and, um, I also loved that they like crossed into that threshold that they thought they were safe in. And it, it was like, because Egwene has some sort of Aes Sedai connection, she felt like she lost something, but they felt safe there at the same time. Yeah. And, and it was this interesting barrier. There was a story about this old leader who they built a statue of and, and the, the city. Dr. Hawkwing. Yeah. Just cool context. There's a lot of that kind of stuff that I don't think we have a ton of time to dive into, but I, I do love getting that sort of I stuff. I will just say real quick, Arthur Hawkwing. Um, I think the name Arthur is very similar to Arthur. And right. um, I think this is one of the early references we're going to get to the sort of, um, what's the name of that? It's like uh, King Arthur and Camelot and like... Right, Knights of the Round Mouse Table. Knights of the Round Table, like yeah. that that sort of uh, myth- mythology and... and um, that writing isn't it like arthurian or something arthurian legends and stuff yeah Yeah. maybe that's what we're looking for he brings a lot of that kind of stuff into so be on the lookout for more influences from that because there there will be more of that too cool and and speaking of something i feel like i have to address at this point we're pretty deep into it if if it's considered a massive spoiler let me know but in the ravens i mentioned in the first chapter that i read for eye of the world there's a there's a thing that's sort of become more important as time's going on because it's shaping how i'm viewing a lot of the things that are happening Mm -hmm. there are these ancient things from the time of legends that are unexplainable certain like buildings and certain things that are unexplainable and like it feels like I, i mean like i basically know because of the ravens chapter that like they they mentioned like flying metal birds and shit like that like so it's like it comes around to basically make me think about the fact that like this is obviously like somehow connected to our world or or like a similar kind of world and like the way that they talk about in a second we'll get to um white bridge i think it's called mm. and i just keep i keep thinking of these places that they visit and things that they see 
and I'm like, okay, so like, what is it? Like, even the thing that I mentioned, um, the first, the first episode with like this person was in the belly of a bird, flew to the moon. I was like, fuck, is that the Apollo mission now? <laughs> like, now that I'm thinking about it, is that literally? And like, you know, I don't know if it's quite one for one as that, but it's definitely something I'm thinking about. And I don't know. You tell me if that's something that I should leave in this early in the story if if I'm picking up on it too quickly. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I think that's something to pay attention to and continue to look for breadcrumbs and see what you think. Um, I'm not going to confirm or deny, um, but I think uh, it's something to pay attention to. And um, you know, a lot of it is sort of left to interpretations of the reader, right? Like right. how how much is confirmed and and stuff. I think is up to for debate and. Um, just thinking about the nature of the cyclical story and he's talked about all these like all these things have happened thousands of times before there's this mm-hmm. long history and there's maybe there's a version that's like one of ours well and there's like yeah. older societies who are way more technologically advanced and had all these different yeah. things and all, all that's been lost to time um so yeah that's a but I think it's cool like it may sound like I was saying like one for one but I think it's really cool texture to the world because it's like little Easter egg fun things that don't break it to the point that it's like, oh, they're going to find a gun in the sand or something, you know, like, but it's like there's ancient things in the water that they can't like deep in the oceans that they've seen and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, we hear we hear this. The We're about to talk about the uh, the captain who who gives a list of things that he's like seen and heard about on his journeys. And uh, yeah, there's some very interesting things there, too, for sure. That that maybe you're like, is that this or could that be this? Yeah. Right. I'm just having fun with it. I, I'm enjoying it. I think it you're so doing it the right cool way. Idea. I think have fun with it. Um, it is interesting that that, that moment and and, uh, and that early chapter kind of tipped you off to that. Um, because, yeah, that is something that I that uh, I started picking up on and paying attention to at some point in the series. I do not think it was book one. I mentioned the first episode. My girlfriend was upset. Not upset, but she was bummed because that detail I picked up on and said something to her and she was like, I wish you hadn't heard that. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's kind of something that's like, well, probably a lot more layered. Uh, and I think like, I, it makes me think, or again, Ravens is sort of for people who have read the series to go back and just get a like nice little taste of them as kids. Yeah. And I mean, but it is also now the official canonical opening. Like if you get the book, if you buy a new copy of it, it's going to have that in there. Yeah. Interesting. You know? I don't know. I feel like it's people are supposed to forget about it by maybe like it just flying by in the first chapter. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, you don't have any context or something and you just. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Um, OK. So uh, next we got to talk about the Tinkers, uh, the Tuathuan. I don't know how to pronounce that at all. Um, I think it's just Tuathon. 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 Yeah. Okay. What did you think of them? Uh, this is group of like traveling um, nomadic people who have like a bad reputation um, in the villages, like accuse them of like making their children run away and join them. Um, right. This reminds me very strongly of um, Romani people um, in our world, like in like legends about them. And um, I, does that make this sort of problematic? I don't know. Um, but I, I do think it's, I do think he's sort of referencing that, like the, the Romani and the sort of, uh, yeah, that sort of group of people. As, so like, the, I mean, like, I think it sounds fun. Like, I think their lifestyle f- sounds like something that I would run away from a boring village to go, you know, be a part of and just be like, no, you know, pacifist. And yeah, like, the way of the uh, leaf we hear about this right. pacifism, I, which is, it, you know, you don't normally encounter that in fantasy. So you have this group that yeah. is like, nope, we're pacifists. And the way that Perrin interacts with that 
Yeah. And I do understand like parents perspective on it because like there's clearly like big bads and but it also reminds me of like, you know, these evil. there are people who get to live better lives because there are people who fight. You know what I mean? Like these these they're they're starting war warring factions. And, you know, some of the time it's warring factions warring for the sake of war instead of actually fighting for a good cause. And so, like, I, I don't know. I think I, I, I think it's interesting to have in a fantasy story. But, yeah, overall, I can understand, like these children leaving their towns to go like just be happy and like in the woods and traveling and like they, they seem just like in like they, they'll be welcome anyone in and and it doesn't seem like it's you know it doesn't seem like a bad way to go about in this dangerous <laughs> fantasy world yeah uh completely agree um it seems like they have a good time with their music and their dancing and uh you know they seem to be uh, quite flirtatious. I think uh, Perrin, Perrin uh, has has some moments where he... This becomes a recurring joke. I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but where Perrin thinks like, oh, I wish uh, Matt was here or I wish Rand was here. He would know what to say or he would know what to do. He, he was always so much better with girls than I am. And then we get very similar thoughts from, from Rand when we get his POV chapter about Perrin. Um, and, and that continues to be kind of an ongoing joke between these three where they, they keep thinking that like in their mind, the other one is like so much better at talking to talking yeah. to girls. Well, and that's kind of true to life. I think yeah. a lot of friend groups are like that too, or like we, you know, this, uns- this younger, obviously yeah. friend groups, but like unspoken sort of thing where you're, you just assume the other person is like, knows something you don't yeah. or something like that. You know? Yeah. You don't see their inner struggles with it, right? Um, you just see the sort of outward. They they seem so cool and like they they know what they're what they're doing. Um, I I think I think it's a great little detail. It's very funny and true to life. Um, there is an interesting thing that happens here where um, I think his name's Ar- Aram. Um, there's there's this like young member of the the Tinkers. Egwene is like. Um, flirting with and, and like she's running around with him some and they go off into the woods and she he gives her like some blue beads yeah. and I was like good for her yeah. I was like I, I thought that was awesome like I, this is part part of what I wanted and, and, like, and Perrin has an interesting reaction right like it's all yeah. it's like almost jealousy what was your read on that is this this seed that makes me think like maybe Gwen doesn't end up with anyone or maybe she ends up with Perrin maybe she ends up with Rand it's building up that but at the same time Perrin being protective of the group slash also maybe even more so of her because he's spending a lot of time with her one on one and like growing affectionate towards her and like slowly over time without realizing falling in love with her for real. Uh, I could see that being a thing. But I, I was happy for Egwene because this is sort of something that I wanted for her character. Like I didn't want her to have to like live this this small life she didn't want to married to Rand in the in the farm village and you know like I this this I was happy for her because she wanted to go out on adventures and live her life and sow her wild oats and like that's what she's doing yeah. like she's out there having a good time and she's doing it she's living her best life and I'm happy for her <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I mean and, and this guy he's like a pacifist he seems like a good dude like there's really no reason to dislike he him. seems a little possessive maybe he's like but but it seems like because because he thinks that Perrin is maybe a romantic rival right right is the read I get of it. Um, but, you know, in, in Perrin's defense, he's like, we can't stay with these people. We're dangerous. Their dark ones are after us. If we stay with them, we're going to get them all killed. So he's like trying to remind her of that. Um, and she kind of says, like, I haven't forgotten. Like, I, I know that. Um, so and she no, she's like, like, once it's time to go, she's like, we're out of here. Yeah. No, like, no questions asked. Yeah. So she's, she's just having yeah, a good time. And, and he I think yeah. he is a little bit like paternalistic, like, underestimating her ability to 
take care of herself and know what she's doing. Right. Um, yeah. So eventually, you know, we talked about the hopper scene and, and like, you know, I, it's interesting because there's been a change in Perrin once once he wakes up with the children of light he's like thinking about ripping their throats out with mm. his teeth and he's like oh I'm not a wolf I'm a man and uh, you know I, I thought that was fun and interesting and these the children of the light like seeing them the first time we meet them I thought they were kind of bumbling and could weren't really a threat when Moraine just like handily took care of them oh yeah because there was a moment where she like she like, grows super tall right or like it makes it look like she is and steps over the gate yeah. and stuff like I was I was like, whoa, she's a giant. She can do that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, like scares them off and stuff. Yeah. But this is the first time we see them as being more of a legitimate threat, right? As They're a they, legit threat yeah. when you're not an Aes Sedai, I guess, like a fully formed Aes Sedai like Moiraine. And, 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 you know, they hunt Aes Sedai. And uh, that's obviously a threat. If a, if a bunch of Children of Light come upon an, uh, an one single Aes Sedai, I'm sure it wouldn't work out great. Right. But, uh, you know, and then them being prisoners is is left me. It's left us with a cliffhanger big time. Uh, they're prisoners and parents basically been told he's going to be killed. Uh, and that's that's where we leave him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the and, and yeah, the threat of the questioners and all this stuff is, is looming um, as as we go forward. Um, OK, I think let's move on to Rand and Matt. So after leading Shigar, Shadar Lugoth with the Trollocs close behind Rand, Matt and Tom stumble across a moored ship on the nearby river Arenal. The captain, Bale Doman, reluctantly grants them passage to Whitebridge. During the journey downriver, Baalzaman continues to haunt Rand and Matt's dreams, and Matt becomes strangely reclusive and suspicious of strangers. Rand discovers that Matt has kept a ruby-hilted dagger from Shadar Lugoth despite Moraine's earlier warning, but fails to connect this new acquisition to Matt's changed behavior. In Whitebridge, the trio are confronted by a Myrdral in a crowded square. Tom apparently sacrifices himself to buy Rand and Matt time to escape, and the two continue along the road toward Camelin, earning meals and lodging along the way by playing Tom's flute and juggling. As they near Camelin, however, they begin to encounter dark friends in nearly every town who seem to be able to recognize them by sight, and Matt's paranoid behavior becomes more debilitating. So I do want to address something right off the bat with like all of them jumping onto the ship Bail Domon, Domon, or mm-hmm. whatever his name is. Yeah, Bail They jump onto a ship. Doman. And around that time, Rand does this thing. I think it's probably the first time that we're seeing it, like, specifically. But he, like, this Trolloc's about to kill him, basically, with a spear. He's about to stab him with, like, a broken hook thing. And he, like, screams no. And this, like, giant boom arm thing that was on the boat mm-hmm. comes and whacks the, whack, whacks the Trolloc. Mm-hmm. And then after the fact, the, 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 ship people make a big deal of being like that was totally secured we told you to secure the heck out of it and all this stuff and it's like he's like he has like crazy powers of and and a little bit later we get this the idea he keeps thinking he's like this is like luck mm-hmm. oh light the light thank you for like i'm, I'm so lucky and these things these weird things keep happening which is very clearly like some sort of manifestation of his power just him saying no uh, like forces the world to do something. Okay, so so let's stop there. I, I I was trying to lead you to this last episode when we talked about it. Maybe maybe a little bit leading you too much, but so it sounds like you do think Rand has some sort of power. Oh, absolutely, okay. yeah. I I don't know if I got you to actually say that, but like, so what do you think it is? I think he's the Dragon Reborn. Are you saying Are you saying more than that? Okay, so you think so you think he can touch. Uh, Say Din. That's the male one, right? Say yeah, Dar. The male. I forget which one's yeah. which. 
whatever the one power the power is yeah he can touch the the side i don't even know if it's the one side of it i don't you know i haven't gotten a total explanation of all of that stuff yet but i know that he's touching the one power in a way that okay. i don't th- it seems very powerful especially what we get with the lightning later on okay so talk about that a little bit like what do you th- what do you think that means going forward in the series if, if he can do that oh well for one, you know, I talked about Moiraine as a threat before, and I do think that would be an interesting twist, ultimately, after getting them to uh, Tarvalon, Tarvalon, sorry, Tarvalon. I say it Tarvalon, and I'm going to continue to say it on accident that way, but it is, I think, Tarvalon, I think is the official way to say it. So getting them to Tarvalon, like, obviously, they're always hunting these, like, false dragons that Aes Sedai are hunting, or specifically the Red Aja. They're hunting them. They seem to have captured one, the, the I forget his name right now, but there's a Loigain. Mm-hmm. And that's another interesting thing we have to talk about because... We hear a lot about this false dragon and people are going to, like, see him and stuff, yeah. And that's, I think, at the end of what we get with Rand and, and, and Matt, like, they're going to see... Uh, like they're, they're like we're going to go f- see Logan. Mm-hmm. Like that's the last thing I read, basically. Yeah, and Camelon. Yeah. And um, I mean his power. He it's going to be interesting going forward because the Isodai will potentially want to kill him, which is what Balzaman has been telling him is going to be the case for a while. So it's interesting to think of threats from all sides, right? And how like he'll develop quickly enough to contend with those things, and and um, at what allies he'll make along the way. And I mean, I, I'm also interested to see like what it means for Matt and Perrin because if they're not the Dragon Reborn, what is like the connection to Balzaman and what that means with their manifesting powers? Or specifically, you know, Matt has this crazy connection with whatever evil he the dagger is channeling through him. It seems like in times. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing just to address, you you mentioned last week, you wanted me to sort of try to piece together where I think the threats are coming from. And I don't know how this this first story will close out, but I do know that this the, the story's called, this first book is called Eye of the World, and they talk about the Eye of the World a lot. Multiple times, it gets, I think Balzaman says, you won't be able to control the Eye of the World, or yeah, you can't harness the Eye of the World. I can't remember exactly what he says, something like that, right? Right. So I assume that we'll get to the eye of the world and see that in some way, maybe see like Rand touch the eye of the world or try to uh, like connect with it and, and become known by everyone as as the the dragon reborn. Like we'll see. But I think that those are all big details. I'm just th- I'm still thinking of like a giant threat that has to be overcome. And it seems like Balsamon sort of an, a long term threat. And it seems like Moiraine and the and the Aes Sedai aren't necessarily I can't call them a threat yet necessarily because I don't know how they're going to react when they get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all leading to Tarvalon for sure. Well, we've only really met Moraine, right? Right. That's our our one you know exposure to Aes Sedai. We've we've met one person, <laughs> and she could be like opposite thinking of of. It doesn't seem like it because she's in line with a lot of the other teachings of the Aes Sedai, like the you know being pure and like not lying and all those other things that she keeps talking about that they have to do that the, that the Aes Sedai have to do. Mm. All right, well I'm not gonna say anything, but yeah, yeah I think you're you're yeah, asking don't. some of the right questions for sure. So so yeah, Bell Doman, who they're on this ship with. Um, he is an interesting character who talks a lot about, you know, the nature of like leaving and being on adventures and like exploring the world. And um, he mm-hmm. actually had a really great quote that um, I wrote down because I wanted to shout it out. He says, the world will put a hook in your mouth. You'll set off chasing the sunset. You wait and see. Um, and basically mm-hmm. he goes on to talk about how your village, you'll, you'll, one day you'll return to your village and it won't be big enough to hold you. Um, and, uh, I 
I don't know. I, I found that particularly meaningful to me as an adult who has moved far away from the town I grew up in. Um, I found I was reflecting a lot on sort of my journey with that and how I have had the experience of going back to the fairly small town I grew up in um, and feeling like, man, I'm glad I left this place. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And just how different my life would have been if I had stayed um, and uh, how to me exploring and I say the world and it's America basically, but like I, I went mm-hmm. to college in you know, Pennsylvania and I live in Oregon now and I, I've gone, to, I've just been to a lot more places and met a lot of different kinds of people and you know, it's trite, but like it broadened my horizons and all that stuff. Right. Oh no, it's a big leaving home. I think you can see a difference between the kind of people who stay at home yeah. and who don't, because I think you get stuck in a sort of whatever age you are when you're there and you kind of retain that sort of life yeah. experience. And even if it's just like traveling a lot, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, like I, I'm still fairly close to where I live, where I grew up, but like I, I, when I go back, it's a world of difference to where I live currently. And it's yeah. like, you know, and then and then just getting the chance to meet different kinds of people, especially like going to going to college was was huge for me, too, because it's like tons of different people from different walks of life. And, and you know, broadening your horizons in that way, I think, is is hugely important to like shaping you as a person yeah. and, and like really seeing what's out there in the world and what's possible. And I, I just like that turn of phrase, right? Like the world will put a hook in your mouth. Uh, you'll set That's up in the sunset. Um, I, I, I really like that. And I think there is a sort of wanderlust that's at the heart of Lord of the Rings too, right? Like there and back again. Um, and it's interesting because certain characters come home, they're changed, but they, you know, it, it's their interaction with their home. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like you get a different perspective. And to me, I think that those experiences make you a more well-rounded bigger in sort of spirit person and i definitely uh recommend people and like you said i think you can do it through just traveling um you know it doesn't have to be like like living permanently somewhere else but anything anytime you can get a chance to just go out and and do something and and experience different places and different people and you know, uh, challenge yourself to do something on that, that that you're uncomfortable with, right? Like, dis- seek discomfort is something that I think we should all do because that's where you grow. Yeah, I love that, and it makes me think of like I think if if everyone in the world did a lot more, so sort of soul see- seeking in that way, and and met other people, and I think there'd be a lot less uh, issues. I think a lot there's there is a t- there is a tendency I think to go with what's safe and what feels comforting and what's easy because we 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 start to sense and we get the feeling that like the people we know and we grew up with in our little inner circle is like, that's the best version. And it's like, it's us versus them and them is everybody else. And them is scary and different and wrongheaded. Um, And the more you get to like go out and meet other people, the more you'll like learn that that's just not the case. And there's a lot of different points of view out there and it's okay to have your point of view challenged. In fact, it's good. Um, so yeah, I mean, and and the reason I bring this all up is I think that is at the heart of Wheel of Time in some ways, because we see a lot of characters resisting change. And then we see a character like Egwene, um, who is more embracing of it. Like she's seeking it out. She wants it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to track how the different characters interact with that and then how they will change through their interaction with the world for better and for worse. And then uh, the effect that will have on them as people and the way they feel about their 
upbringing in Two Rivers. I, I, I know, especially, you know, Rand talks a lot about how he wants nothing more than to go back to Two Rivers. I think Perrin says, like, no, 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 I want to go back to mm-hmm. Two Rivers and just work in the Forge, and that's all I want in life. And Egwene's like, right. no, I want to go to Tarvalon <laughs> and be an Aes Sedai and, like, see the world. And um, they're obviously all getting thrust into this adventure, but I think it's an inf- interesting thing to track is, like, throughout the course of the series, we won't get as much of it in book one, but, like, the changes these characters undergo and at who they are as people as they grow and change and the interaction with their backgrounds and, you know, two rivers and all that stuff. It's cool stuff. Pay attention to it. Um, and, um, I, and then, you know, you tie that with like the nature of violence and pacifism versus needing to be someone who's willing to fight um, is another big thing that gets talked about a lot. And I love that he doesn't give complete short shrift to pacifism, Right. Like, Robert Jordan doesn't say, yeah, look how silly these people are, and we all just laugh at them and go, oh, they can't defend themselves, they're pathetic, and then move on. I feel like he gives it a good run. Like, he's like, no, this is a legitimate, like, philosophy. And he, he you know, the way of the leaf is very interesting to me. And it's it's one of those things where it's like, I know there's there's a lot, like, Buddhism, like, true Buddhism involves pacifism right and and unwillingness to harm and things like that and like the more research you do into that um if you're an empathetic person i think you will see that like there is a lot to be said for that um i also agree that sometimes it you know won't fulfill every facet of life when it comes to like what you do when there's a threat and i don't know just certain things but I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I find it hard to really argue against sometimes because, you know, if you were a true believer in that way of life and that philosophy, there are answers to all of that. Um, so, and, and sure, if, if all the world believed in pacifism, it would be great, right? There would be yep. no violence. I love the way that Elias, like, interacts with them as well. Like, the way that he's, like, accepted in the group, kind of an old friend, but they don't agree with the way that he's, like, ripping people's throats out and shit <laughs> yeah. if necessary. And, uh, oh, another thing that I do love about that is uh, they keep talking about, like, Elias as, like, a wolf with one tooth and with his with his knife. Uh, and when Perrin eventually, like, kills some of the white cloaks, they're, like, they talk about, like, him with his axe and it's, like, one tooth because mm-hmm. he's, like having just like had that interaction with Hopper when Hopper is yeah. killed and, and like, yeah, he's a wolf with one tooth now. And, and, you know, like going forward, I'm, I'm excited to so follow that. I know we're talking about Rand and Matt, but I, I have to back up a little bit for Perrin because I do think he's my favorite um, of the three. Um, I, I love Perrin. If I had to pick, I think he's my favorite. And I, I'm glad that we actually do get some POV chapters from him here. Um, and we get some of, I think what makes him really interesting um, and the way he thinks about the world. But the other thing I I noticed looking back is that early on, at least, he doesn't feel like dramatically different than Rand. Like, I feel like there's some similarities, but I'm wondering what your take is on it. Like, can you do you feel like there's a stark difference between the two of them, those two POVs or or, or, I think enough of a difference for me. Uh, And, And like, what would you say is different about Perrin? He seems he seems like less sure of himself. I think a little bit. Rand feels like he kind of thinks he's a little bit more capable. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I I don't know. There's that moment I, I think that is showing Perrin's like his sort of deep self that he kind of decides that if those ravens descend on them, he was going to kill Egwene. Mm-hmm. And like that's like that takes a different you know different kind of person to think of that kind of yeah and then he's sort of haunted by that thought afterward too of like right what is, was i going to actually do that 
you know, it's a mercy and it's like a mature thing to think of, I guess, in a way, uh, like for, depending on how you feel about that sort of yeah. thing. But that, you know, I don't know. He he does feel, like you said, kind of similar, but he's different enough for me. Well, and he has a moment where he talks about the axe, right? Like he wants to throw it away. Oh, I love that. Yeah, too. You're going to need it. And then and, and that whole that whole section I love because he was talking about how like if you, you know, it, when you feel like you don't want to throw it any longer, that's when you should. Yeah. Because like, you know, keep keep that will to want to throw it away and refuse the violence and all that kind of stuff. And that's really parent. I think that's that's like what we're pull, seeing from him is like uh, slow to vi- strong, but slow to, to act, not slow to action, but slow to violence um, in sort of like a level headed way. And then obviously once push comes to shove, like he tore the heads off of a couple of white cloaks. He can yeah. be uh, quite ferocious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, yeah, back to, to, to Matt and Rand. So um, after the, after the boat, they, um, I think they're in white bridge when they're getting ready to go across this courtyard. And all of a sudden there's a fade and Tom basically throws himself at it and tells them to run and, and, you know, fly you fools. Yeah, fly you fools. <laughs> and all of a sudden Matt and Rand are on their own seems like Tom might die doing this. Yeah. Um, he's not dead. Yeah. There's no, I'll eat my hat if he's dead. <laughs> I'll eat, yeah. I'll literally eat a hat. Um, but so Tom, Tom Marilyn is thinking more about some of the stuff you were talking about. Like the, the last name seems more important to me now than ever with almost a Merlin kind mm. of ring to it. He's so clearly more than meets like the eyes. He's not just a gleeman. Well, he's also, he's definitely a mentor. For them right like he, they there's been a series of mentors and um he's like the last one that rand and matt get separated from and all of a sudden rand and matt are truly on their own out in the world where they're kind of not prepared and they immediately have to fall back on what he's taught them right and they're they're like playing the flute and oh, i love that and stuff. stuff yeah the that that was awesome it reminded me of a D character that i have <laughs> where like a per- perform uh it's like an archer that does like performance yeah trick shots and stuff and it just reminded me of like that's like sort of part of that that like going city to city trying to escape evil like getting by just like squeaking by on just like jumping in people hitchhiking with people and then and then like you know performing it's cool that they became so proficient in playing music and juggling as quickly as they did but um you know it's useful skills in this world and i think that's cool texture as well and and of course the connection to tom they think he's dead obviously and and like that's uh you know it's he's still getting them through it even after he's gone Mm -hmm. supposedly and and there uh, is a um there is an, a connection between Matt and Rand, despite what's going on with the dagger, that I do feel like there is a close friendship, right? Like, I, I'm thinking there's like there's yeah. a couple moments where Rand, I think, gets ill at one point. He catches a fever. Um, there's another point where uh, Matt's having these these nightmares, and I think he, like, goes blind for a little bit. Um, and then, like, there, I think at one point, I think it's Rand is, like, holding Matt like he's an infant, and he's, like... He's like crying or something. So like yeah. they are like bonding on the road here. And despite what's For going sure. on with Matt, because he's a little dodgy with his feelings about the dagger. Um, I think it can be easy to overlook that there is a true sort of friendship strengthening going on here as they as they travel together. No, and I definitely felt that. And that's that's something that I liked about their friendship. And and I think Rand is giving Matt way more slack than he would if he wasn't such a close friend because he keeps doing this crazy sh- unhinged shit where you're like what what are you doing you're trying to kill a random farmer yeah it is weird that he doesn't seem to make the connection I think that was noted in the in the plot and I'm like it is kind of weird that Rand doesn't notice that he's acting kind of different 
But I guess, like, if you in a world where you haven't watched Lord of the Rings, maybe you don't think about the idea of a cursed object affecting you in this way. It's also like this idea that he's becoming paranoid because they keep getting attacked, yeah. and they keep they're they're constantly under under threat. And so I guess just like that, you could you could chalk chalk it up to that. Well, but. well, speaking of that, they go to this inn called the Four Kings, and there's this dodgy innkeeper who's skinny, and um, I don't know if you've noticed this about my brother, but my brother Ben, um. He has used the ter- the name Dreadlord for a long time as his like oh, yeah, name yeah. on like online and stuff for uh, games and stuff. We get the first drop of that I think is mentioned in here, right? Like the dread, like the Dreadlords, like the Dark One will summon the Dreadlords again or something, right? Yeah. So I don't know if you caught that and you're like, hmm, that's where it comes from. <laughs> oh, definitely did. I, I that was my question. I was like, is this the first instance of a Dreadlord? Yeah, that's all. I believe I, you'd cool. have to ask him, but origin. I think that this is where he gets it from. Um, you know, and he has used it for many, many years. Um, and I thought you were going to talk about the the skinny bar. Well, and also one bar, of the things he uh, he often says, like whenever we're like playing games and stuff, is like, oh, you can't trust a skinny bartender or an innkeeper. And I just thought it was funny because that goes back to this book because that is definitely where he gets it from. Um, this moment, and um, because this guy uh, kind of turns on them and he's trying to get, he's going to like rob them, but then there ends up being this uh dark friend named Goad who comes after them and um, they're trapped in this room trying to escape. They're at the door. It's so creepy, by the way. Goad is like watching them perform for a long time. And like, I was trying to pick up if it like, I I loved the mystery of it for a little while there because that whole chapter you're like, is he a dark friend or is he somebody else? Yeah. Yeah, the skinny innkeeper also has this like muscle. He's like bouncers basically. And so like they're a threat. And then this creepy guy is just like smiling at them and staring at them intensely the entire time. And then he's like, while they're in their room, he's like, he's like trying to get in the door and like banging on it and and like saying crazy shit to them. And this is where the other instance of this like crazy ability happens. And and like this, this like lightning bolt just fucking blows a hole in the wall basically and kills this guy. Yeah, I think this is the first moment young Luke realized something was up. I think the boom wasn't enough. I was like, oh, that was a weird boom thing. But I was like, okay. And it, but it was this moment where I was like, this isn't just luck, right? Like something's happening here. Um, yeah, because the, the, the lightning strikes the like window they're trying to escape from and blows it apart and like kills all the people at the door and like all this stuff happens, right? Um, and we're seeing like a taste of some of the power that maybe Rand is able to, to, to draw. Um, if, you know, if your theory is correct, which, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it's it's possible it's a coincidence, you know, like anything can happen. Yeah, yeah, you never know. Um, okay, and then, yeah, I, be, I mean, basically we end this section um, with them uh, arriving at Caitlin, right? Like they encounter some more dark friends. There's a woman who tries to stab them. Um, there's all this stuff, and um, they're arriving at Caitlin, and we hear some stuff about this, some of the characters at Hamelin that we can look forward to meeting um, or to learning more about um, and sort of the political situation going on there. So that's something we'll definitely be touching on in our final book episode. Um, but our final book episode is not going to be for a few weeks because we are actually going to dive into the first four episodes of the show next week, um, which I will admit I've already watched uh, the first two episodes of, but I um, will hold all thoughts for our next episode and we will be talking about that and then we will come back finish the book and then we'll finish the show and i've recently learned through some research that um or i think you sent me an article or something basically that um the the show is going to actually cover some stuff that happens in like book two and three 
So I think it's good that we're doing it this way because uh, just chronologically, it might go, the show might go beyond book one. So we'll get a chance to finish out book one and then, and then go and talk about the show. Um, so uh, look forward to that. I mean, our final show episode won't, won't be for a while, but we'll, we'll talk about that more as we go. Um, but yeah, that's the middle chunk here. Um, any other thoughts about this and how you're feeling going forward, what you're excited for in the book or what you're interested for in the series? Yeah. So one, one other like small detail I definitely want to hit on is the, so I talked about how Jordan gives us the scenes that we want. Like he, he's always like cutting back to scenes that we want and he cuts to the scene of Moiraine, Lon and, and Nynaeve coming into the city uh, into Whitebridge where Tom had just potentially died and like they're they're all still reacting to it and like she like uh, Moiraine is making decisions about like okay well she can still sense the coins of, of like one of them but the other two she does she's they're kind of unknown where they're at right now um, and going into that I thought for sure we were going to get to see the fate of Tom from their perspective and just seeing the city from another perspective like having just like having just had that whole crazy conflict and then having an other characters come into it and view it from a not knowing what happened was awesome i thought that was really fun and i, I really enjoyed that chapter um and that didn't give me quite as much detail as i was yeah. expecting i was like oh maybe we'll get some some answers but you know i thought that was cool and, and i'm excited to see what they do other than that i've just really been enjoying the story as i've said and and i can't wait to like i'm probably gonna you know continue reading here soon because yeah. we i can you know because all we're just covering the show until we book three episodes. We should also mention I'm actually going to Florida. My brother, the one we just talked about, uh, is getting married next weekend, and I'm I'm flying in. We're both going to be at the wedding, and because of that, I'm going to be staying in Orlando for a little bit. So we will be recording our next episode in person for a second time this year. Uh, yeah, I, you know that's a that's record. A record, I think, for us. So that'll be a lot of fun. Look forward to that. Oh, uh, a couple of things. I did want to say congratulations uh, to Fonda Lee. Uh, a favorite of the podcast who was just on for our Dune coverage, joined us way back when for The Godfather. She just released Jade Legacy. Um, I think today when we're recording this, but um, it'll be a few days when you hear this, but it, you know, it just came out. And what it is, it is the final book in her Greenbone Saga trilogy. It is now a completed trilogy. I know there are a lot of people who won't read anything until it's like completely done. Um which, you know, for reasons I could get into, like, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. But uh, regardless, it is now done. So <laughs> you have no excuses. You should go pick it up. Um, and speaking of that, we also do have a bookshop, which I always link in our show notes. And all of her books are in that bookshop because we have like a list with all of the books from our guests. And if you were to buy them using that link, it actually supports our podcast. That would be awesome. And you can support her and the podcast and not give any money to Amazon. All that would be great. Um, yeah, I just want to say congratulations to her because this is a, I, I know a big thing for her. She's finished out this this massive series and it seems like it's getting some really glowing reviews. Um, I know she just posted like an NPR did a big review of it and stuff like it's 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 a big deal. And we're hopeful that this adaptation is going to happen for her. And it's just very cool. And she's a friend of mine now. So it's just great. Yeah, I, I'm so excited for her. Congratulations to Fonda. And um you know, I've heard many, many people talk about how like her series, Green Moon Saga, is up there with almost any other series in, in modern fantasy. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in, in it and you haven't, we haven't sold you on it on the episodes we have, we've had with her, hopefully you'll go pick it up because like 
it's it's one of those series that uh, it's going to stand the test of time, and I think it's really important. It's, yeah. it's you know huge in the modern in the modern fantasies. Yeah, so, get in now before everyone knows about it, and then you can be one of the OG yeah. fans. I, you know, absolutely. Um, the other announcement I wanted to make is we just released a episode on the 1984 uh, David Lynch uh, adaptation of Dune, the original Dune adaptation that a lot of people grew up with. Um, whether you love it or hate it, I think there's a lot in the episode that we released for you. Um, I had a lot of fun talking with you about it. It was my first time really watching it. I was definitely watching it as an adult, and uh, it was it was a trip. I had a lot of fun things to talk about there, and that is on our Patreon this month. Just released it. So head over to our Patreon, sign up, and you can get that episode and a bunch of other bonus episodes that we have on there. Patreon.com slash Inktofilm if you wanted to support us. That would be awesome. And also check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And we have the Council of Inklings on Facebook where we post polls and all kinds of other stuff. But also we have a Discord server that uh, I would point you to. If you wanted to get the link for that, it's in our it's in the Council of Inklings on Facebook, but also message us on any social media platform and we will give you the link if you're interested. It's just been a really cool way to interact with our our listeners in a more intimate way. Absolutely. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. If you're on YouTube, like the video, leave us a comment, let us know you enjoyed it. Um, we love to hear from our listeners. Let us know that you're out there. And then, uh, yeah, share the episodes. If you know some uh, Wheel of Time fans, I know there's a lot of coverage happening across the internet, um, but we try and do the book justice in relation to the actual adaptation so I hopefully uh, hopefully you all enjoy our takes on this. And uh, if you do, share it with another Wheel of Time fan, you know. And thank you to Sirius Beat for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay, man, uh, that's it for this week. And I will be in Florida. I can't believe it's December already or it's about to be. Um, it's already the holiday season. This 2021 is coming to an end. It's wild. Um, what a what a just wild year it's been um very different in 2020 in some ways and not different enough in many others um i know there's some new variants out there uh, uh or a new variant that is uh, of concern so i hope everybody stays safe and healthy uh for their for their holiday season you know we're all just trying to figure out how to live and how to how to still live our lives and see people we love and care about and still stay safe and you know if you're not vaccinated get vaccinated i think uh, that that is our best defense against this thing and our best way to ensure that more variants don't pop up so anyway that's my little diatribe about it but like ultimately i just hope you all are are staying happy and healthy out there and i wish you the best and i do as well and until next time keep adapting <laughs>